My name is Dr. Daryl Spitalier, and today begins the first podcast that I'm referring to as Seeing Life from a Different Angle. Strange title, I know, but after some consideration and after really hearing more than once from my patients that I do see life from a different angle, I wanted to share some thoughts, ideas, feelings with you from a psychological as well as philosophical as well as religious perspective. I have been blessed for many, many years to be able to work with my patients and I've gained so much knowledge from them. It's amazing how much we can learn from others when we're willing to listen to them. And it is my hope to be able to share some of the knowledge that I have gained some of the insights I have gained. And that's why I'm referring to this as seeing life from a different angle. I think probably the best way to begin this first podcast, other than introducing myself, is to talk with you a little bit about what I mean by a different angle. I look at life this way, is that when we are first developing psychologically, we have what I refer to as this wide open reality. And it's wide open reality, we can imagine as children, anything, everything, anything is possible. Anything is something that we can grasp. Are there aliens? Of course. Are there people that live under the earth? Of course. You know, can we make things be the way we want them to be? Absolutely. But sadly, this state doesn't last long And of course, it makes sense that it doesn't last long because the real world doesn't really allow for us to believe that all of these things truly exist or can truly continue to exist. And so what ends up happening, more often than not, is that our parents who care for us and love us and want to take care of us, they begin to force us, for want of a better way to put it, into this myopic reality. Now, if you can imagine, myopia is a state where our vision becomes very narrowly focused. And the same is true for our reality. And what ends up happening is that we begin to conform to the reality that our parents would like us to have. Now, this is motivated by two things. And it will require us to step back just for a moment to explore both of these. But it's required out of the fear and what I refer to as the pathology of our parents, that we conform to the reality that they see. So let's stop for a moment and think about what that means, that fear and that pathology. If we imagine it this way, is that we're all small children. And we say to our parents, can I have a dollar? And our parents say, here's 25 cents. And we ask for a dollar. Say, please, please, more. And our parents say to us, no, 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 you have 25 cents. Be thankful for the 25 cents. And so we throw a tantrum, as children are wont to do, and our parents say to us, okay, listen, kid, you have two choices. You can either accept the 25 cents or we'll just take it away from you. As human beings, we're inclined to say, okay, well, I'll accept the 25 cents. And this is the beginning of what I refer to as the status quo at least when we think of it psychologically. 
So let's step back for just a moment, and I hope that you'll follow along with me. Basically, what ends up happening is when we are first born, psychologically, we are nothing but what Freud referred to as an id. We're born into this world and it is cold and it is, we are wet and we are hungry and the lights are too bright. And so our mothers pull us in, they feed us, they comfort us, they warm us, and they let us know that everything is going to be okay. At least we hope. And this is the beginning of what the id needs to function, which is to reduce tension. And as we go along, the mother will hopefully continue to reduce tension as it arises within us psychologically and physically. But eventually what ends up occurring, much like the story of the dollar and the quarter, is that our mothers and fathers can only give us so much. They have limits themselves, limits that they have lived with since they were children. Some are real in the sense that they are things that they cannot provide for us, a bigger house or a bigger car or, you know, or more food or the types of food that we would like. But some are also internal. And these internal ones, they're established by their own relationship with their own parents. But to return to the notion is that what ends up happening is that when the id cannot find enough reduction of the tension that arises from all these sensations that are bombarding it, it develops or takes a piece of itself that we end up calling the ego. And not the ego of pop psychology that would have us believe that we have an inflated sense of ourself. No, not that type of ego, but an ego that's designed to help us deal with the world, to help us to understand you know, the external world as well as the internal world. And the ego's task is pretty straightforward. It's ordered by the, by the id to ease tension and to ease it as quickly as possible. But the ego is faced with the same thing that the id was faced with, which is the reality of the real world. Our mothers are busy, our fathers are busy. They can't always give us everything that we long for and they can't give us everything that we come to need. Which brings us to a really important point, that we have needs. Particularly speaking, I'm referring to what I refer to as ego needs. Now the ego, if we can compare it this way, in this kind of gross analogy or metaphor, is that the ego is a lot like the human body. We need food in order to survive. And so let's imagine we have this large plate in front of us. And we have all these different types of food that we would like to have on this plate. Now, if we're very gratified, then all the types of food will be on this plate, all different food groups. And we'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but plenty to eat. And the body as itself will benefit from all of this food. But in reality, we oftentimes don't have all the types of food that we would need to eat. In the same way, the ego does not get the gratification for all of its needs the way that it would long to have. And there are consequences for this. One of the things that occurs when we don't get enough gratification for the ego's needs is that the ego feels a measure of tension and a measure of fear. 
But why would it fear? It fears for itself, for its own existence. It fears the consequences for not being able to ease the tension of the id. And one of the things or the byproducts of all of this is that development of what we refer to as the fear of abandonment or what I refer to as the fear of expulsion. We'll get into those things at a different time, but let's go back to the notion of the, of the dollar and the quarter. When our parents give us what it is they can give us, what happens is that, psychologically speaking, we now have what I refer to as a psychical status quo. And the status quo is something that we live within and we have to live within. So let's use this as an example. You go into the kitchen and you look for your mother to give you a hug and so you raise your arms and you ask for a hug. It's what I refer to as the erotic need, the need to be touched and held and caressed. And so your mother is busy. She's busy doing something in the kitchen. She's otherwise occupied. And so she shoes you away ever so slightly, but she shoes you away. But being two years old, your patience lasts as long as a two-year-old's patience lasts. So seconds later, your arms are up looking for her to give you a hug. But this time she responds with some measure of sternness, we'll say. Otherwise occupied, she needs to focus on her task. And you may in that moment be something that bothers her. So what do you do? You step back out of fear and you trip and you fall. And in falling down, you start to cry. What does your mother do in consequence of that? She comes racing over to you and she picks you up and she gives you a hug. And the ego says, aha, I have just discovered a way to get the erotic need met. It's not the healthiest way, but I can get my needs met this way if from now on I just cry or I get hurt or I fall. This begins the process of what I refer to as pathology, the distorted ways that our ego finds to get what it is we need. So now, if we return to the idea of a myopic reality, we have the groundwork laid for us. We have our parents who in their own fear and their own pathology seek to kind of confine us in this myopic reality. We almost can envision it this way as they have built this fence and they say to us, you must live in this fence because this is what we need you to live in. This is what eases our fear. This is what satisfies our pathological view of ourselves and of the world. And so we have this fence that is built around us, and that is the real world. That's the reality that we see. And it's a reality that we maintain because in that space, we're afraid to step out of it. We know there, at least, that going back to the metaphor of the food, that at least I can get these certain types of foods here. And so as a byproduct, we stay within that fenced in yard. The strange thing about it is this, is that it ends up becoming for us the measure by with which we measure. You know, we, we tend to think about others only from that reality. 
we tend to think about ourselves only from that reality. We look at the world only from that reality. And so when we think about it, oftentimes a number of patients have said to me throughout the years, you know, this is this is how people treat me. I am the, the one common denominator that leads people to treat me poorly in my life. And the truth of it is, that's not necessarily so. The reason that it appears so is because we are stuck inside of that fence that has us viewing ourselves and the real world in this particular way. And so part of, I think, effective therapy is to begin to free us from the confines of this reality. And I think that that kind of gives us the opportunity to examine life from a different angle. If we can envision it this way, is that life is like a circle. In a myopic reality, we can see only about 10 degrees, which leaves 350 degrees unseen for us. It's such a large amount of life unseen that really, if you think about it, going back to the idea of a wide open reality, at one time we could see. Our imaginations would allow us to see it, or what adults call imagination would allow us to see it. But to a child, it wasn't imagination, it was real. But that other 350 degrees is blocked by the reality that we come to live in. Again, fostered and maintained by our own fears and our own pathologies. And so in this small space, what would it look like if those 10 degrees were challenged just a little? What would happen if we added a degree, two degrees, five degrees? If we step back and looked at life ever so slightly differently? Here's an example from my own life. When I was nine years old, we were living in this town in New York called Wappingers Falls. It was a small little town. And I went to my father. And at the time, I said to him, I have this crush on this girl. And I was struggling. And the reason I was struggling was because my best friend Paul also had a crush on this girl at the same time. And my father's reaction was to laugh, to chuckle. And for the longest period of time, for a very long period of time, I took offense at that. I thought that he was making fun of me. You know, but after some consideration and looking at life differently and trying to see it from another five degrees beyond the five degree, the 10 degrees I ordinarily would see it in, I started to ask myself a couple questions. One of those questions was, how old was my dad at the time? My mom and dad were young when they got married, and so my father was only 30 by the time I was nine. And so, you know, I thought about it, you know, what was I like at 30? You know, what was he like at 30? You know, perhaps at some level or another, this was all new to him. Of course it was. You know, here's his son saying he has a crush on a girl, and the son is eight years old. And so I thought, you know, it's fascinating to consider what if he saw it differently than I saw him, that he saw it as, you know, this is so cute, this is so sweet that my son would feel so deeply for someone and at the same time be so concerned about his friend. 
I also thought, you know, maybe he laughed because he, you know, reminded himself or I reminded him of the experiences from his own childhood. Maybe he had had a crush on a girl at that age and, you know, now he has his son saying the same thing to him. But the point is this. By seeing it from a different angle, it began to alter my relationship with my father. My perspective on him changed. And as a byproduct, my relationship changed. I won't say that it is easy because it is hard for us to, going back to the metaphor of the fence, you know, peer over that fence, let alone to consider knocking down a part of that fence and expanding our yard. But on the other hand, let's think about the consequences for doing so. If we allow ourselves to begin to see life from a different angle, what does it mean for us? First of all, we can't really get there, I think, without really addressing the pathology that life has brought upon us or that we are now living in, let alone the fear that maintains that pathology for us. So we must tackle the pathology first. We must begin to look at ourselves and to look at how it is we get the gratification we're looking for from others. It's a strange thing to consider how distorted something so simple and so beautiful becomes. C.S. Lewis talked about how, you know, we cannot really understand the dark unless we understand the light. We cannot really know what dark is. And so what we end up having to do is we have to be exposed to those events, to those experiences, those conflicts of life in order to really value and understand what it is that life really is about, what it does bring to us. In the same way, when we think about it, going back to the story of the little boy or the little girl who asked for their mother to pick them up and hug them, you know, there's something beautiful and simple about the notion of just wanting to be held in this way that is straightforward, that is gratifying. There's something also very simple about the idea of being able to share with our parents, share with our siblings, share with our friends, share with our loved ones, share with our spouses, what we feel, what we think, what I refer to as the emotional and the intellectual needs. And to be able to genuinely be ourselves without having to bend over backwards in order to be what it is that we think other people long for us to be, all with the goal in mind of getting what we and society have referred to as love. But sadly, not all that we call love is love. And so we settle for less than what it is that we need. But if we begin to tackle our pathology, if we begin to really look honestly at the things that are occurring in our life and say to ourselves, you know, is this the healthy way of getting what it is I need? You know, why do I turn in these directions? Why do I act out in ways physically? Why do I act out in ways emotionally and sexually in order to get something from others and give myself the illusion that this is love. When we are just developing psychologically, our ego 
has no notion that we are not what we may later call lovable. It doesn't doubt that there is reason to gratify these needs. Again, just like with C.S. Lewis, it doesn't understand what is unlovable about itself. So it doesn't see that it is lovable. It just doesn't understand why the world can't gratify these needs. And what we later end up calling love is based upon, at least in part, at a human level, based upon the idea of gratifying these ego needs. But if we begin to really look honestly at ourselves, taking the chance, the risk, of looking toward a direction of saying, you know, I really would like to get back to that place that that little child once existed in, where she could reach up and just be held because she was worth holding, not for the other person's sake, but for her own. You know, that she really was worth crying and having comfort, not for the sake of another, but for her own, that we can get to this place where we no longer need our pathology. But we also have to recognize that fear is there for a reason, and fear is such a powerful force that it seeks to maintain this status quo at all costs. It'll throw everything at us. But at the same time, if we want to see more than the 10 degrees that we were raised to see, if we want to recognize other things going on around us, then we also need to take that risk, to take the challenge. I remember many, many years ago, this elderly patient of mine was struggling with her anxiety. She had been overwhelmed by life and felt unloved by her kids and by even her grandchildren and sadly not an uncommon tale, but one of the things that she struggled with in particular was severe anxiety that would come upon her at night. And I said to her, and she laughed and paused and challenged me in this, but I said to her, we have to follow the path of anxiety. And by that I meant when we feel anxious, we have to begin to look at it differently than the medical world would want us to look at it. We have to begin to look at it as an opportunity to ask ourselves, am I challenging the status quo? Which is why it is that my ego is experiencing anxiety. So it will be an anxiety-provoking and indeed fear-provoking experience to begin to see life from a different angle. But there are benefits. And so what are these benefits? I look at human beings as children, children in adults' clothing, and that these layers of clothing have been added to this little child who just longs for one thing, something simple, something straightforward, which is to love and to be loved. And these layers of clothing are all the pathologies and the fears and the anxieties and the trepidations and the shame and the guilt that occur in human relationships. And to slough off all of these layers of clothing, one by one, you know, however long it takes to slough them off, allows the child to emerge 
a child who wants to love and to be loved. And in so many ways, isn't that really all we are chasing? And after everything is said and done, all we long for is to be loved, to be valued, to be cared about. And I believe that there's probably not a single individual who is listening to this now who doesn't feel exactly that way. We look for it in the oddest of ways, in the strangest of ways, in the strangest of places. But after everything is said and done, the one thing that we long for is to be loved. It doesn't necessarily mean, however, that we believe ourselves lovable. And I know that that is a topic of some great depth and definitely one to examine and explore as we move on. But I will say that it is our goal in life to get to a place where we can love and we can be loved again. And I think that that's where we begin to see life from a different angle. Thank you very much. Be well.